welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is both the surgical oncology and the skin and soft tissue modules from the general surgical curriculum. And our patient or topic we'll be covering today is melanoma. And this episode follows on from our previous episode where we introduce melanoma and we're going to move into talking about management. So in our previous episode, we talked about excisional biopsy of pigmented lesions in order to diagnose a melanoma, as well as to get an idea of the Breslow thickness or the depth of the melanoma. The next step is talking about both wide excision of the melanoma site, which is the next step after you've done your local excisional biopsy, as well as talking about what to do with the lymph node basin. So let's start with wide local excision of the melanoma site. So for an invasive melanoma, you need to go back and take a wider margin around where the melanoma was. This is to reduce the risk of local recurrence. The agreed on, I guess, measurements are for a less than one millimeter thick melanoma, you need to go back and take a one centimeter margin around the scar. For a one to two millimeter thick melanoma, there's a little bit of controversy and there's a trial that's still uh, pending the outcome called the Melmart trial, trying to determine what the best margin is, but it's agreed upon probably a one to two centimeter margin is required. For a two to four millimeter thick melanoma, a two centimeter margin is required. And for a very thick melanoma, so more than four millimeters thick, more than two centimeter margin is required. The other consideration is that for a desmoplastic melanoma, which is one of those subtypes we talked about in the last episode, you should also consider a wider margin. So even if it wasn't very thick, you would still be trying to take at least a two centimeter margin. And this is because desmoplastic melanomas have a higher local recurrence rate. There's not great data for this, but I think from the tutes I've been to, it's pretty uh, well practiced that that's what melanoma surgeons would do. And for your wide excision of the melanoma scar, you want to excise down to the deep fascia. And for this closure, you can do any closure that's appropriate. So if primary closure is appropriate, that's fine. But um, usually you'll need some sort of flap or graft to close the area. Unlike the excisional biopsy where you don't want to do a flap or a graft at that point because it makes it more difficult, I guess, to come back and take a wider margin if the tissue planes have all been disrupted from a flap. So the next thing to talk about is sentinel lymph node biopsy. And a sentinel lymph node biopsy is a staging investigation. So it's a diagnostic test that's going to provide prognostic information for this melanoma. The benefits or the goals of a sentinel lymph node biopsy are to decrease the number of non-therapeutic lymphadenectomies, to increase the accuracy of staging of melanoma and to identify patients who might benefit from adjuvant therapy. 
You want to do the sentinel lymph node at the same time as the wide local excision because the wide local excision itself is going to disrupt the local lymphatic drainage, especially if you do a flap reconstruction. So if a patient's already had definitive management of the primary disease with a wide local and a flap, that might actually be a consideration or a contraindication to doing the sentinel node biopsy. If a patient's had previous surgery in the lymph node basin as well, then you might need to consider whether a sentinel node is appropriate. So which patients should get a sentinel lymph node biopsy? The way I remember it is actually who should not be getting a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So patients who have a melanoma that is less than 0.8 millimetres with no ulceration do not need a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And patients who have clinically or radiologically abnormal nodes, they don't get a sentinel lymph node biopsy. They need an ultrasound-guided FNA of the node to determine whether or not it's involved. And if it is involved, then they need nodal surgery, not a sentinel node biopsy. So pretty much everyone else gets a sentinel node biopsy. There's some discussion with patients who have a 0.8 to 1 millimeter thick melanoma, but don't have any ulceration, or if they have a less than 0.8 millimeter melanoma, but they have ulceration, you should consider a sentinel node biopsy, but probably would have to be a discussion with the patient. And the risk of a positive sentinel node biopsy in that case is probably about 5 to 10%. Definitely the thicker the melanoma, the higher the chance of having a positive sentinel node. So for a melanoma that's more than four millimetres thick, there's an over 40% chance that the sentinel node will be positive. We definitely can't talk about sentinel lymph node biopsy without talking about the landmark trials, the MSLT1 and the MSLT2 trials. So the MSLT1 trial is a trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014, and it randomized 2,000 patients with primary cutaneous melanomas, and the melanoma had to be at least 1.2 millimeters thick. And it randomized them either to a wide excision of the melanoma site and no nodal surgery. So they just observed the lymph node basin And if they developed lymph node metastases or clinically apparent lymph node metastases, they then went on to have a lymphadenectomy. And the other group they were randomized to was wide excision of the melanoma site and a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And for those patients that had sentinel lymph node biopsy positive disease, they then immediately went on to have a lymphadenectomy. The primary endpoint for this trial was melanoma-specific survival compared between the two groups, and it actually didn't find a significant benefit for either arm in terms of the melanoma-specific survival. From its secondary endpoints, though, there was an improvement in disease-free survival, which was 6.6% for the intermediate thickness, so that's between 1.2 and 3.5 millimetres thick, and 10.2% in the more than 3.5 millimetre thick groups. And this was because patients had better local nodal disease control and had a reduction in the recurrence in the regional nodal basin. There was also a finding in this trial that for patients with an intermediate thickness melanoma who had a positive sentinel lymph node 
and then went on to have their completion lymphadenectomy, which is what the randomization was in the trial, that they had a survival advantage compared to those patients that didn't have a sentinel node biopsy and proceed to lymphadenectomy. So um, that was one of the important findings from this trial. The other question that this trial answered was whether or not sentinel node biopsy is useful in melanoma. And they found that the percentage of patients that had a positive sentinel lymph node was the same percentage as patients in the group that didn't have a central lymph node who subsequently developed a nodal uh, recurrence when they were doing their follow-up of the nodal basin in that other group. So they have also said from this trial that basically sentinel lymph node biopsy is an accurate staging test to detect occult metastases in the lymph node basin. So because MSLT1 wasn't powered to detect that secondary outcome that they found that a completion lymphadenectomy in that intermediate thickness group improves overall survival. They then ran the MSLT2 trial, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017. And the primary outcome was to evaluate the role of a completion lymphadenectomy after a sentinel lymph node biopsy for melanoma. So they randomized 1,934 patients to either a sentinel lymph node biopsy and completion lymph node dissection if the sentinel node was positive versus a sentinel lymph node biopsy and nodal observation with ultrasound and surgery only if there was a recurrence in the lymph node basin um, as the second group. And the primary endpoint was melanoma-specific survival again, as well as disease-free survival and the cumulative rate of non-sentinel node metastases. Those were the two secondary endpoints. And the findings were that an immediate completion lymph node dissection was not associated with an improvement in the melanoma-specific survival. They did show that the completion lymph node dissection improves disease-free survival because of that improved loco-regional control, but that didn't have an effect on the overall um, survival of the patient. And they found that patients who had a completion lymph node dissection had 24% rate of lymphedema compared to only 6% of those having um, just the observation um, after sentinel lymph node biopsy. So that was a lot of information about those two trials. Why do we actually care about them? And we care about them because nowadays these two trials have meant that for patients who have a sentinel lymph node biopsy, so they have clinically and radiologically negative lymph nodes, so they go on to have a sentinel node biopsy, who has a positive sentinel node, these patients do not go on to have a completion lymphadenectomy. Instead, they go on a program of surveillance of the nodal basin, usually with an ultrasound scan every four months for the first two years and then every six months for three to five years. So if we don't do a lymphadenectomy in patients who have a positive sentinel node biopsy, who gets a lymph node dissection? So the indication for lymphadenectomy with melanoma is if nodes are involved with the disease clinically on presentation. So that's someone presenting with clinical lymphadenopathy who then has an ultrasound and FNA confirming that the regional nodes are involved. There's also a role in 
melanoma presenting with a nodal metastases and an unknown primary. And this happens in about 10 to 15% of patients who have melanoma. So they present with palpable lymphadenopathy, but you can't actually see a primary melanoma. And it's thought that maybe the melanoma has regressed or there's a theory maybe it arises within the lymph node itself. But in these situations, that would be an indication for a lymph node dissection. There's also some indication that it's useful in local control in somebody who has metastatic disease, but locally the disease is out of control. And there's some debate at the moment, and this may change, that for patients with clinically positive nodes, maybe we should be giving them neoadjuvant therapy followed by completion lymph node dissection. But at this stage, there's no good evidence for this. So For the exam, I think I'll be saying that the standard of care is clearance of the lymph node basin and then adjuvant treatment following that surgery. The other important thing to note here is that if a patient is presenting with clinically positive nodes and has an FNA showing nodal disease, that these patients should be staged with a CT PET scan and a CT or MRI brain. And this should be done prior to their lymphadenectomy because if they have metastatic disease, then they'll probably go to systemic treatment prior to surgery. So in terms of lymphadenectomy for melanoma, obviously it will depend on where the primary melanoma is. So for a patient that has a head and neck melanoma, then they may need a radical neck dissection, may or may not include a superficial parotectomy or a modified radical neck dissection, depending on where the melanoma is and where the disease is. For patients who have upper limb melanomas, then they'll need an axillary dissection. And for melanoma, this is a level three lymph node dissection and often includes resection of the pectoralis minor in order to actually reach those level three lymph nodes. And for patients with lower limb melanoma, then this involves a complete clearance of the subinguinal lymph nodes in the femoral triangle and should include cloquet's node. And this can also be extended to an ilioinguinal nodal dissection in the pelvis if there's evidence of involvement of the pelvic nodes on imaging. If you have a trunk melanoma, then the lymph node basin that requires dissection is the one that has involvement of melanoma. So now we've talked about what to do after you have your excisional biopsy in terms of wide excision and either sentinel node biopsy or lymphadenectomy. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other treatments for melanoma. So in terms of medical treatments or systemic therapy, we used to give things like interferon alpha and biologic agents such as IL-21 and IL-18 to treat melanoma, and these were not very effective. Now we have some really great targeted therapies that can be used for melanoma, and I just wanted to go through these each in turn. So the two main groups of systemic treatments that we have now are targeted therapies and immunotherapies. When we're talking about targeted therapies, we mean BRAF and MEK inhibitors, So BRAF and MEK are part of the MAP kinase pathway, which is a pathway of cell signaling in melanoma, and mutations in this pathway lead to increased signals for the cell to proliferate, survive, invade, 
make angiogenesis and become drug resistant or treatment resistant. And about 80% of melanomas have an increased activation of this MAP kinase pathway. And about 40 to 50% of melanomas have a mutation in the BRAF gene. And this is called a BRAF V600E mutation. So for patients that have this BRAF mutation, they can be offered BRAF inhibitors. And the type of BRAF inhibitors we have are dabrafenib, vemurafenib, and encorafenib. And these drugs basically target the BRAF protein, which is activated or overproduced in patients who have these mutations to cause apoptosis and to reduce the signaling and growth signals for the melanoma. BRAF inhibitors can be combined with MEK inhibitors. And MEK is a protein that's made in that same MAP kinase pathway. So it's sort of the next step downstream in that signaling pathway from BRAF. And so combining it with a MEK inhibitor that targets the MEK protein, then this extends the survival of patients on these treatments and reduces the development of resistance to BRAF inhibitors, which is a problem with these treatments. The type of MEK inhibitors we have are tramatinib, cobimetinib, and binimetinib. Some side effects of BRAF and MEK inhibitors include fatigue, nausea, skin rashes, joint aches, and diarrhea. And the other problem I've alluded to is that the majority of patients on these treatments will eventually develop resistance to this therapy. So they may work for sort of 12 months to two years but they eventually will get resistance to the treatment. And so patients who are given these treatments usually have a 26 to 34 month overall survival. Saying that though, they're pretty incredible drugs and they work very, very quickly. So in patients who have extensive metastatic disease, they can be a really good fast treatment to try to get the disease under control. And if they work can have a pretty amazing effect. So within weeks on imaging, you can see most of the melanoma sort of melt away. It's pretty amazing. The next type of treatment is immunotherapy. And this was developed um, more recently than the targeted treatments I just talked about, but now are considered first-line treatment for melanoma. The mechanism of action is quite interesting in that it actually uses the patient's own immune system to make the immune system recognize and destroy the melanoma cells. And they're thought of as immune checkpoint inhibitors. So part of what a T cell does is obviously make sure that it doesn't attack your own body. And it does that by having these checkpoints where T cells have a protein that can be switched on or switched off to modulate whether or not they mount an immune response. And melanoma cells actually can sometimes use these checkpoints to turn off the body's ability to recognize the melanoma cells and therefore to prevent the immune system from attacking the melanoma cells. So what the immunotherapy drugs do is that they actually block those T-cell immune checkpoints to restore the immune system's ability to identify and attack the melanoma. So the types of immunotherapy drugs we have or the classes include PD-1 inhibitors and PD-L1 inhibitors, and then also the CTLA-4 inhibitors. So PD-1 inhibitors include the drugs pembrolizumab and nivolumab. 
And PD-1 inhibitors are inhibitors that block a protein on T cells, the PD-1 protein, that usually stops the cells from attacking other cells in the body. So it's one of those checkpoint proteins. And so by blocking this protein, the PD-1 inhibitors enable the immune response against melanoma cells. So the other drug I mentioned is the PDL1 inhibitors, and L stands for ligand. So this works in a similar way, but instead of blocking the PD1 protein on the T cell itself, it blocks the protein found on other cells that usually is the ligand or the protein that comes and attaches onto the PD1 protein on the T cells to tell them not to activate. So it's basically stopping the ability of other cells and melanoma cells, I guess, from being able to switch off the activity of the T cell. The PDL1 inhibitor drug we have is called atezolizumab, and often this is given in combination with a PD1 inhibitor. The important thing to know about these drugs is that they are activating the immune system. So the side effects of these treatments mostly have to do with immune-related adverse events or autoimmune type conditions. The common types of side effects include skin rashes, colitis or gut inflammation, thyroiditis, and this can lead to irreversible hypothyroidism requiring lifelong medication, and also joint inflammation. Some of the more rare types of autoimmune conditions related to anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 treatments include hypophysitis, so pituitary gland being inflamed, and this can lead to long-term pituitary failure and obviously complex management of that. Patients can develop a type 1 diabetes, which can be really, really difficult to manage. And patients can also get lung inflammation, hepatitis, and myocarditis or pericarditis with an autoimmune type picture. If these side effects are picked up, it's really important that they're identified early and typically steroids or immunosuppression are required to manage these problems. The other subclass of immunotherapy are CTLA-4 inhibitors. And the main drug here is ipilimumab. And CTLA-4 stands for cytotoxic T lymphocyte antigen 4. And this antigen plays a role in the early activation of T cell responses. So by having a monoclonal antibody that will attach to that antigen, basically releases the break on T cell immune response. It can be added to PD-1 inhibitors, and this can improve overall survival. It's typically not given on its own. It has a similar side effect profile to the PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors, and combining these treatments increases the risk of these side effects. So if you use two compared to if you're using one of these drugs, then the risk of those autoimmune side effects is higher. Compared to BRAF and MEK inhibitors, anti-PD-1 and CTLA-4 inhibitors have a relatively slower onset, so they take about 12 weeks to have a response or a clinical response. But compared to the BRAF and MEK inhibitors, which do eventually develop resistance, the response to these treatments seems to be more durable, so patients will have a longer um, improvement or control of their disease. And the interesting thing is that actually... Unlike BRAF and MEK inhibitors that have to be continued until 
the patient progresses on the treatments, the anti-PD-1 and CTLA-4 inhibitors can be given for a short period of time and then stopped and the control of the melanoma seems to continue even when the drugs are stopped because the immune system response will continue even though the drugs have been taken away. So now that we know about these systemic treatments for melanoma, the question is who gets them? The first group that will be treated with these targeted therapies are patients who are presenting with metastatic melanoma. As we mentioned earlier, there's an increasing risk of recurrence with increasing stage of disease. So patients who have early stage melanoma, like stage 1A or 1B, the five-year melanoma-specific survival is more than 94%. So surgery is curative for most people. In terms of stage 3 disease, as we mentioned, the prognosis deteriorates as you progress from stage 3A to stage 3D. And so for stage 3B onwards, for resected melanoma, there is an indication for adjuvant treatment with these targeted treatments. And in Australia, usually this is 12 months of nivolumab, and this will half the overall risk of recurrent disease in these patients. The question of whether or not we should be giving these treatments neoadjuvantly hasn't yet been answered. So in the absence of metastatic disease, these treatments aren't really given neoadjuvantly at the moment, but I'm sure as more data comes out, that may change in the future. So I briefly wanted to touch on the role of radiotherapy in melanoma. And the options for radiotherapy include radiotherapy to the primary melanoma site, radiotherapy to the nodal station, and radiotherapy to metastatic disease. So talking first about the primary site, radiotherapy may be indicated in inoperable disease and especially in lentigo maligna, so that in situ disease, especially if it's a really large area and on the face, radiotherapy could be considered. Usually this would happen in older patients and patients who are declining surgery. The other role for radiotherapy to the primary melanoma site is if there's involved or close margins that cannot have further excision because of anatomical constraints. The other role is potentially in an adjuvant setting for patients who have a high risk of local recurrence. So patients with positive perineural invasion, really deep melanomas, so more than four millimeters thick, presenting with satellite nodules, ulceration, and as we mentioned earlier, desmoplastic melanomas have a higher local recurrence rate, so that might also be an indication for local radiotherapy. And also on the head and neck site, especially as um, they're at much higher risk of recurrence than melanomas in other sites. It's important to consider that patients at high risk of local recurrence are also at high risk of distant metastases. So any decision about radiotherapy should be made in a multidisciplinary team and systemic therapies also considered. The next potential site to give radiotherapy is to the nodal basin. And the indication for radiotherapy to lymph nodes is after a regional lymph node dissection has been performed if there's a very high risk of relapse in the lymph nodes. The radiotherapy reduces local 
recurrence rates by about 50%, but doesn't have any impact on overall survival. Because as I mentioned, if they're at high risk of recurrence there, they're at high risk of systemic disease. So the indications for nodal radiotherapy include multiple nodes being involved. So this is a node in the parotid, more than two in the cervical location, or more than three nodes involved in the inguinal or axillary lymph basins. If there's very large lymph nodes, more than three centimeters in size. If there's extra nodal disease, if there's a large ruptured node, or if they're already presenting with regionally recurrent disease. It's important to note that doing radiotherapy to a lymph node basin after they've had a lymph node clearance actually increases the risk of lymphedema overall. So the morbidity has to be weighed against the potential oncological benefits. The last target for radiotherapy is in metastatic disease. Radiotherapy can be used to palliate, so if there's a symptomatic metastasis, especially for cutaneous or bony metastases. It also can be used as a targeted treatment for cerebral metastases. Patients with oligometastatic disease who are also on immunotherapy, radiotherapy can be combined with the immunotherapy in order to promote an abscopal effect, which is basically that you sort of sensitize the body to the melanoma and although it treats the local area, it actually increases the effect against cells that are outside of the area you are actually irradiating. I wanted to talk a little bit about in-transit or satellite lesions because I've mentioned these when we talk about N-staging. This is the C part of the N-staging. But what actually are in-transit or satellite lesions and what do we do with them when we identify them? So they used to be classified as in-transit being arising between the primary and the draining lymph nodes and a satellite being a deposit within two centimeters of the scar. But now they're believed to be the same thing, which is essentially a rest of tumor emboli in the dermal or subcutaneous lymphatics. In transit or satellite lesions can range from a localized small lesion to a field of nodules to widespread disease throughout the entire limb. And as I mentioned, it's classified in the TNM as C disease, so N1C, N2C, and N3C disease. About 10% of patients will develop in-transit metastases, and often this is the first site of recurrence after they've had treatment of their disease. And the median time for this to occur is between 12 and 18 months. And all of the features that we talked about that make a melanoma more likely to recur increase the chance of development of in-transit or satellite lesions. So these are older patient, thicker tumors, tumors that are ulcerated, have a high mitotic rate, evidence of LVI, and if they had regional lymph node involvement at the time of their original diagnosis. In general, management of this condition has to be targeted towards the individual patient and the extent and type of recurrence that you can see. If they have localized limited disease, then a wide local excision of that disease combined with a sentinel lymph node biopsy, because this will give you important prognostic information, could be considered and then subsequent systemic adjuvant therapy. If you have a 
patient with extensive in-transit disease that's throughout the limb and can't reasonably be excised, then systemic treatment is usually the first line. And there's a number of other sort of local treatments that have been described for in-transit and satellite metastases. And these are basically techniques that aim to destroy the the little nodal deposit or the little deposit of tumour. This includes radiotherapy, laser destruction of lesions, injection of different agents into the lesion, so the BCG vaccine, interleukin-2, rose bengal and interferon alpha, and also use of topical agents like amiquimod have all been used for satellite lesions and in-transit metastases. The other thing that they talk about for these pathologies is the use of isolated limb perfusion or isolated limb infusion techniques. And interestingly, this is listed in our operative nose section of the curriculum. I'll be interested to talk to our special guests when we get them on the program um, to find out how much these are used nowadays with the newer treatments that we have for melanoma and the success of these newer treatments. But I'll just briefly describe what isolated limb infusion and perfusion actually are. So historically, melanoma had a poor response to systemic treatment. So amputation was really what was required for advanced lesions on the limbs. And isolated limb perfusion was developed to try to salvage the limb and basically involves delivering a high dose of chemotherapy to the limb only. The indications for these sorts of procedures include a locally advanced melanoma, a very large tumour, multiple satellite or in-transit metastases not able to be locally destroyed or resected, or invasion into adjacent structures. So isolated limb perfusion is a procedure where you have to surgically expose either the femoral or auxiliary artery and vein, and then you clamp these and connect them up to an extracorporeal circuit, kind of like a heart-lung machine. And this was what will keep the blood that's flowing in and out of the limb oxygenated in order to keep the limb alive, basically, while you're doing this procedure. You then also have to use a tourniquet to compress the smaller subcutaneous tissues and and smaller vessels. And then you infuse a cytotoxic drug, um, usually something like melphalan, and you give a really high dose. So it's like 10 times higher than a systemic dose of the chemotherapy. And you circulate that through the limb using this heart-lung circuit for 60 to 90 minutes. And then the limb is flushed out to make sure that the dose of chemotherapy doesn't then get pushed back into the systemic circulation. The circulation to the limb is then restored, the cannulas are removed, and the patient is closed up. This procedure, as you can imagine, is time-consuming and also uses a lot of equipment. So you need to have a perfusionist and things available in order to do this procedure. There's also quite a lot of toxicity or morbidity associated with the procedure. And there's an amputation rate of around 1% following this procedure. Obviously, the pros are that you can deliver a really high dose of chemotherapy directly to where the tumor is. And the response rates are around 46% for melanoma, with a median recurrent free survival of 14 months. So in order to try to find an alternative that wasn't as resource intensive, isolated limb infusion was introduced in the 90s. And this also has less morbidity because it doesn't require surgical dissection. 
So this procedure is performed using radiologically guided percutaneous insertion of catheters into the axillary or femoral artery and vein. Patients are placed under general anesthetic again and systemically heparinized, and the catheters are connected to an extracorporeal circuit, but this doesn't include a heart-lung machine. It just incorporates a blood-warming coil, and a pneumatic tourniquet is also then used to um, isolate the limb from the rest of the body. And again, cytotoxic agents are infused through the arterial catheter and it's a low flow circuit. And this leads to quite a hypoxic and acidotic environment in the limb. But it's thought that this hypoxia and acidosis actually enhance the action of the melphalan chemotherapy. So this time the drugs are infused only for about 30 minutes. And while this is happening, the limb is warmed with a bear hugger. And once the 30 minutes is up, the limb is then flushed with a liter of Hartman's and the tourniquet is removed and the catheters are removed. Isolated limb infusion has a similar response rate to isolated limb perfusion, but with reduced toxicity and a reduction in the requirement for equipment and the time of the procedure. For both of these procedures, melphalan can be used, but also some centers use actinomycetes D or tumor necrosis factor alpha as well. So just to finish us off, I wanted to talk about a couple of special populations in melanoma. The first one, which we briefly mentioned, is melanoma lymphadenopathy with an unknown primary. And it's thought that this is probably because the primary has regressed or been attacked by the immune system and destroyed, but the metastatic disease has survived. So in this situation, you want to stage the patient, so a CT PET scan, CT or MRI brain, and then usually a lymphadenectomy of that lymph node basin. And then you would treat the patient as per 3B or 3C disease. So usually these patients will get adjuvant therapy and you may or may not consider radiotherapy depending on the final pathology. The other thing to mention is that for metastatic disease, obviously we've mentioned the systemic treatments and radiotherapy, but there is a role sometimes for surgery in metastatic disease for melanoma. For patients that are fit, who have a long disease-free survival, more than 12 months from their primary, who have low-volume metastatic disease that's easily resected and with a low risk of morbidity from that resection, it could be considered to do a metastatectomy for melanoma. But obviously, these are complex decisions and would be made in the setting of an MDT. The last thing to mention is brain metastases. Unfortunately, central nervous system metastases in melanoma has the worst prognosis or outcomes out of all of the metastatic sites. And if you remember from the staging part of the podcast, M1D disease is distant metastases to the CNS. So it has its own little staging section because of its association with prognosis. For patients with brain metastases, surgical resection, whole brain radiotherapy, stereotactic radiosurgery or systemic treatment are all options. And as you can imagine, the treatment plan should be run through an MDT. And that completes this episode on the management of melanoma. 
I hope you learned something. I definitely did going through all of these different treatment modalities and obviously melanoma is a pretty rapidly changing field. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It makes me feel good to read your reviews and also helps other people find the podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!